So this past week, we have been reading Maps of Meaning by Jordan Peterson. Um, several shows ago, I did a show on the intro in the first chapter, so we're going to be getting into the second chapter. Just as a kind of summary of some of the things I covered in the introduction in chapter one is Peterson's idea of the two ways of viewing the world, either a place of things or as a forum for action. And that you can look at the world as either of these things, but when you're looking at one to the exclusion of the other, you're missing a picture of reality. So looking at the world as a place of things is kind of uh, associated with the scientific outlook on life, the objective reality, the things that we can study, whereas the mythological or the religious framework looks at the world as a place for action, for actually doing things. And in order to do things, um, you require values, things that are pulling you towards something or pushing you away from something else. The options available in, um, in a, a mode of action mean that you have different values that you're prioritizing in different ways. So in chapter two, this is where pretty much makes up a big chunk of the book. The chapter itself is like almost 200 pages. So we'll only be covering the first part of that in this show. He looks at this form of forum for action and the evidence for it and how it actually plays out in everyday life and on multiple levels of reality almost. So he starts out by looking at just ordinary life, just the an ordinary description of the kind of interactions and situations you might encounter in life, and then getting a bit deeper and looking at the neuropsychology, and then getting into the mythology, which is the biggest chunk of the chapter. So we're going to look, save the mythology for a later show and just look at the first bits. So what he's showing here is actually, this is where he gets, he shows the diagrams of what is the kind of um, generic map of meaning, because as in the first chapter, one of the main points that he makes is that the world cannot be seen exclusively as a as a place of things, because things don't do anything. They don't change. They don't morph. They don't um, transform. They they are just static. Things are static. Um, the world is a form for action. the The thing that makes it so is meaning. When we are perceiving objects or engaging in any kind of meaningful behavior, it is because we are perceiving meaning in it. We are responding to meaning and kind of injecting meaning. So when, when I mentioned perception, when we're actually seeing something, we're not just seeing objects. This is a point that Peterson's made, you know, in several of his talks in the last couple of years, last few years, that we're not just seeing objects. We're actually seeing, um, well, it could be tools, but we're seeing the things in what they in what they mean for us in a certain context. So if we if we see a door handle, it's for turning. If that had no meaning for us, it would just be this kind of indistinguishable indis, indistinguishable blob of matter. You know, it wouldn't be a thing. The things that we see are things because of the meaning that they have for us, which is socially mediated. So that, that's kind of a background for the overall map of meaning. And the overall map is basically the, the present that we are living in. This is our current situation, determined and conditioned by everything that has come before and everything influencing us in any given moment. And then that kind of um, that space of transformation in the middle, where, which is between the present and the possible future. 
And he calls these things, these places, the unbearable present and the ideal future. And it's the unbearable present because the thing about life, the thing about consciousness, just the thing about being itself is that it's always moving, it's always changing, it's always either growing or evolving or devolving in some way, it's always changing. And he basically argues and makes a good case on like a fundamental level that the, not only the nature of uh, mind and and human behavior and action, but like the, the almost the world itself seems to be structured in such a way that there is a direction to to life, to 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 being, to um, to just everything there is. That that we are constantly in our everyday lives. Just to bring it back down to the, just the the human level, we're constantly moving towards something. We're not. We don't just stay the same and statically, mechanically, automatically repeat the same behaviors like a um, like a clockwork toy machine. Um, we are constantly engaging in goal-directed behavior of some sort. Mm-hmm. Whether those goals are consciously um, acknowledged or not, um, it could be as simple as like the instinctive the instinctive goal that uh, that we have no control over. Um, or very little control over for, for hunger or something like that. So we get hungry, our body needs food, we feel hungry, and then our actions we are, are directed and we control our actions to some degree to get food, to stop being hungry, to fulfill that goal that has been influenced by our biology. And no matter what we do in life, there's always some goal in mind because we we wouldn't do anything if there wasn't any goal. So... Just right off the bat, we see in that picture of the world that it is imbued with meaning and value because our goals necessarily, because their goals, must have some meaning and value for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't perceive them or we wouldn't pursue them. And, um, and we see that, uh, that, that the world is, that we can't not see the world as a form for action. We can't just see it as a place of things because in a place of things, there is no room for goals. Because goals aren't things in the way that science uh, and scientists think about things. Things are the objects that we study. They're the material things that we study. But Peterson's outlook is very, even though I don't think he, at least so far, he doesn't really argue against materialism, his overall viewpoint is very non-materialistic. Because the essential parts of the, the map of meaning are, have nothing to do with matter. They have to do with values and meanings. The, the, the meaning that we find in, um, in the objects that we see and the goals that we have and these ideal futures, these potential futures that we direct our actions towards. And uh, kind of probably the, the coolest thing about that that I found was that just the idea that we are constantly engaging in this, whether we're aware of it or not, we're constantly comparing our present state to potential futures. And, you know, before, before listening to some Peterson lectures and before reading this book, I'd never really thought about it in terms of that, that this is a process that's going on constantly. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's part of the very basic nature of um, consciousness, humanity, whatever we are and are doing, it's there and it's inescapable. It's inescapable that we are constantly in, in 
in myriad different ways, shaping our behavior and um, shaping our behavior in terms of a pursuit of multiple goals that are often in conflict with each other. Maybe we will, you know, we'll get into some details on how that all plays out in his in his discussion. But what did you guys think? Did you have any initial thoughts on? Yeah, well, just in the pre- uh, preparation for this show, I uh, I was able to observe something similar to what you're discussing happen uh, what, that came up as kind of a, a hurdle to just the, the reading of the book. And I was, you know, reading through that, uh, the beginnings of the chapter and getting through it. And it's a very dense book. It's full of, you know, neuro, uh, neurophysiological, you know, slogans and words. And so mm-hmm. it's you know, it's, you, you have to make an effort to really, you know, slow down and understand what he's, what he's talking about. But as you make through the, make it through the chapter, you know, it kind of unfolds itself and a lot of things become somewhat, you know, self-explanatory. But as I was, you know, reading this book, I got a notification about a bill that I had just completely forgot about. It was, you know, this credit card that I, I hadn't had for, or I hadn't used, and I never used, and it was just one of those annual things. And so then in my mind, I was like, oh, shoot, so, you know, and I have to pay this, this, uh, this thing. And I realized that uh, all of a sudden the study for the show became completely irrelevant mm-hmm. in my mind because of this new piece of information, this new meaningful piece of information became that much more relevant. And so I was, you know, all of my attention was shifted towards, okay, so now, um, I have to, I have to, uh, pay this bill and I have to, you know, I have to remember what the dang, uh, password was. I have to remember what my sign in was. I can't even remember what the, you know, the actual website. And so, and then I was just watching, Watching as it goes, as it was, the whole process was going on, and I, I thought it was really interesting because we, I just read about you know the limbic system and its role in kind of mapping out what is um, the ideal kind of world, what it should look like, and what or what it should feel like, and what it shouldn't feel like, and how it directs a lot of attention and emotional resources towards things that are relevant. And it was interesting to me because then I was just, I just put it aside and then just kept reading because I was like, well, you know, another different part of me was more interested in what Jordan Peterson had to say, you know? So I was like, well, you know, that's just all silly, whatever. That's not actually that important to me right now. I'll just, I'll, I'll take care of it when I take care of it. But it was interesting to observe that process take place in, um, and then, you know, to use, you know, his framework in, or in just in looking at other, other aspects of, of daily life too, and just how our machines are uh are or or just orient themselves you know or we how our body orients towards incoming information towards um things that are in our environment and just automatically you know m- you know charts its own course you know with or without conscious deliberation yeah and i didn't mention it but probably the most important aspect of this map of the world this map of meaning is this idea of novelty that's the unexpected. It's what he calls unexplored territory at various times. It is the, the new thing, the thing you're unfamiliar with, the thing you're not expecting that comes into play in your life. So that was this bill coming out of nowhere that, mm-hmm. you, that you hadn't thought about. And how that process of, um, of the transition, like the eternal, never-ending transition from the, from the present to the ideal future, is an encounter with novelty that... Um, that all all learning that we go through that we experience is an encounter with novelty. It is it is 
it, it is creating the um, creating the known world, the, the, the world of your experience that you're familiar with, out of things that are new and unfamiliar. And like he points out at one point, everything that was, everyone, everything that is known currently was previously unknown and novel. So everything that gives us comfort and regularity and familiarity with the world is the, the comes out of the prior transformation of novelty into that, that, ex, that exploration of the unknown then becomes kind of consolidated in your routine and your habits and your worldview. And this applies individually and culturally throughout all history mm -hmm. and creates that body of, of culture and of, um, not just habit and familiarity. And the encounter with the unknown is where we learn new things. And the encounter with the unknown is the primary element in that transformation. Because you can't learn anything just based on... You can't learn anything new, obviously, if you don't encounter anything new. If, you're just, if you just limit yourself to what you already know and already experience, then that is kind of indistinguishable from being an, an automaton and a, just a mechanical being. The, but there's something intrinsic about life itself that there is this encounter with novelty that can either, um, can either be a good thing or a, a bad thing, and even that will, be, will depend on what your aims are because this whole process is dependent on what the goals and the aims are. Like in your example, you have this immediate goal of just reading this book and learning these things, and then this unknown... Um, kind of chaotic element introduces itself and all of a sudden your aims and your goals shift. You're not thinking about the book anymore. You're thinking about this bill, right? Your, your, your internal processes have been completely derailed and set off track into this new direction. And it took some, a little bit of effort for you, like a uh, conscious effort for you to kind of redirect back onto the track that you were mm -hmm. on previously. But it was this automatic process. And this gets into the the neuropsychological stuff that he talks about, that this is fundamental on the biological level too. It's the orienting reflex. It's like we are, our bodies are, are, um, are such that when we encounter something new, our attention automatically gets diverted to them. And this just, it just makes sense. It makes sense on all levels because if something is, is new and uncertain, you're not sure the nature of that thing. It could be good or it could be bad. If it's bad, you might die. So it pays to direct your attention towards it. So the, the first kind of response to something new is to orient towards it and kind of um, stop what you're doing and attend, attend to it mm -hmm. to see what it is. And then after that, depending on the nature of it, that, that engages curiosity. So then you might be, okay, well, what is this new thing? Let's explore further or, you know, let's get the hell out of here because it might be something extremely dangerous. But even those things, all of those things are context dependent. They depend on certain goals. So he gives several kind of real life examples in the book that he goes through like extensively. He gives the examples, uh, most of them are like in an office setting. So, so he or, or just the, you know, the, the, the type of character that he's invoking here are in the office, have a certain goal in mind. Maybe it's, getting down a certain level of stories of the building outside to get to a meeting in another building. And you have, so imagine yourself in that, that situation. You have your habitual route planned out in your mind. 
okay, well, I'm going to leave my office at this time because it's going to take about 15 minutes to get there. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave then and then I'm going to take the elevator down and I'll be there with plenty of time, you know, or just in time. But you get to the elevator and push the button and you're waiting and it doesn't arrive and you're still waiting. And, it, you know, <laughs> the more you wait, we've all had this experience, right? Where we're waiting for something, probably an elevator. And the more you wait, the, like the more time you're wasting, but the more you don't want to kind of take the stairs because you've been there for so long and it's going to come eventually, right? So you waste another couple minutes waiting for the elevator until finally you realize, okay, well, the elevator's not coming, obviously. And, uh, and so you take the stairs. And then you get down, you're already like 10 minutes late because you've been waiting for this elevator or you've, you, you're, you've, you've got five minutes now when you get to the bottom of the, of the, of the stairs, as opposed to having, you know, 10 to 15 minutes if you would have taken the elevator. So you're strapped for time and you get onto the street and you're kind of running down the street. Now everyone on that street is now an obstacle. Whereas previously they might've just been neutral objects. They might've even been objects of interest or, um, or maybe even, maybe even more than that. But now they're getting in your way. Like old ladies, it's like you'll, you'll have the influence to just knock them out of the way. Kids, you know, I don't like kids. And uh, you hit a red light, you know, no walk sign. And now that red light is like your nemesis. And you, um, you, know, you, are, uh, influ you are motivated to jaywalk or whatever. And all of those things, all of, the, all of your re reactions to the things in your path change fundamentally from if you were to just have taken the elevator. Your goal has changed the, the flavor, the emotional flavor of the things in your experience. And this, is a, this just has so many different um, implications for pretty much everything mm -hmm. because our, it, it, is our, it is our goals, it is the, the values that we have that are intrinsically tied with our goals that determine the way we see not only the things in our life, the experiences, but the other people in our life. So if we have a goal in mind that necessitates, for, for example, um, the, like he gives, he gives the examples of all these totalitarian systems of government, like he, he uses examples from the Holocaust a lot and the, you know, the gulag. If you have a goal in mind that necessitates the, the treatment of other individuals, other humans as cattle or less than human, then you can see how that would happen. You can see how that is possible because they're because what they value, their goal, their, the goals that they have in mind necessitate that. Just like in that example of the the person running to the street, there is a situation where a, there there are situations in which a a person who is considered a good person and considers himself a good person can find old people and little children to be nuisances just to be batted out of the way. Whether or not he'll act on that in any kind of violent way is another question, but the, the perception, the, the feeling, the, the, the valence, the, 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 the emotion in his mind changes the, the way, the actual way that he perceives those people. Well, so actually you, you just brought up a very uh, important point to the whole reason that Peterson came up with the book. And that was, uh, as he's explained in, in many other videos, that one of the reasons for his life's work is to understand the very nature of evil and how it was that certain political regimes could justify to themselves, could rationalize um, the, the wholesale uh, malevolence that they inflicted on other people. 
And so what this, what this book seems to be an outgrowth of is this kind of wanting to get down to the nitty-gritty of how it is we operate, how it is we cognitively deal with uh, the day-to-day um, in situations such that um, we can take a step back far enough to, to be able to uh, exercise some amount of um, distance and, and control over ourselves so that we can navigate life in a, in a constructive way. And one of the ways that we do this, and, and Corey kind of started us off right off the bat, and you, you followed suit, Harrison, is to tell stories, to tell stories and narratives about what it is we're doing and based on the values that we have, based on the, the goal-oriented achievements we'd like to make for ourselves, based on the um, desire to get out of this, um, what does he call it? The, the unbearable un- present. The unbearable present. The, 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 moment, the moments that you have in the present that say, this isn't the life that I'd like to have, and I don't have you know, what I want yet, and, and um, it might look like that, it might look a little different. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of the, that's kind of, a, another, uh, bigger picture or, per, or perspective of, of maps of meaning is, is to, you know, the whole purpose of this and, in, in kind of looking at, um, how it is we come to respond to stimuli, uh, how we assess stimuli, um, negative or positive, uh, and the choices that we make in the medium, the long term, and even the short term, all of these things go a great deal towards uh, being manifestations of the the values that we have or that we say that we have. Um, so, so having this kind of perspective, uh, at least in theory, I, I'd still like to get my head around a lot of this and assimilate it better for myself. Um, in theory, is going to put us in a better position to not react uh, to certain things um, that might come as a surprise uh, in our lives and, and in our environment. Um, things that hopefully we can anticipate, at least to some degree. Um, but I do want to get back to your explanation, Harrison, of uh, the this this novelty this kind of surprising element that comes into one's life and i think we have a a diagram of that it's called the ambivalent nature of novelty because this is really just a kind of you know first tier of unexpectedness of of little things that that come in the way like a like a bill uh and an email like Corey suggested or a um you know a a uh, two dozen ladybugs that are in your studio that are flying around, you know, you could say, uh, well, they're not really hurting anything. They're, they're a bit of a nuisance. Um, you know, they, they, they become, they're, they're less of a problem than, than we can make them out to be. Than bears. Yes. And, uh, you know, and there are also, there are also little things that might be positive signs in our reality, little kind of boons or boosts that, um, that also take the form of anomalies and, or novelty in our life that we can respond to and, 
you know, like, a, like the possibility of an extra shift at work or, you know, uh, or a, a birthday that's coming up, an, op- an opportunity to celebrate something. Um, so that's the, that's the very first tier. And uh, he puts this into a context of another slide that he creates called the normal novelty in the course of goal-directed behavior. And um, that one that one kind of gets a little more complex because um, in the normal course of things, you still have a name, but you know those aims can be um, uh, kind of presented with obstacles and and are places from which to uh, decide how you're going to respond. Um, and so I think I'm going to leave it at that. We have two more slides that we're going to get into. Um, well, yeah, just, uh, like just going back to the example that I gave. So I had an aim and which was to, you know, be prepared for the show clearly. And then this little element of the unknown came in, right. And it was the, this bill, but then like, let's say that you add this other element. So I'm going in and I can't find the, um, you know, I can't find my password or whatever. And so I, I go and I'm, I'm looking further and I'm investigating. And now I see that somebody has been using this credit card and they've been racking up huge amounts of debt, right? Now that's a whole new element where now I'm in a completely different reality that, you know, as he points out, and scientifically speaking, what, you know, I'm still the same person. I'm still, you know, in the same, same house and same, made of the same matter, same, you know, physiological systems and everything. But in terms of, you know, maps of meaning, my, my internal map is now completely needs to be updated. And now I need to take a drastic course of action where, you know, researching for the show is not is completely irrelevant and, and and it would make sense to for it to be completely irrelevant at that time so now i'm in a completely different territory and now the um the valence uh, of threat is extremely high and so you know he talks about negatively valenced things as being you know threats and punishments and threats are like you know the the promise of punishment so now i know that you know financially i could be you know who knows you know how how bad it could get you know so let's say it was a debit card my bank account was wiped out or you know something along those lines you know, in the in the blink of an eye, you can be drug into the a realm of chaos, um, from which you know now you have to update all of these new um, all of your your maps in order to figure out how to get from that unbearable present back to a place of stability, back to the realm of order, quote unquote. And you know, um, what was the it was na- navigated. Was it was that the right the word that he uses? It's the the realm that you have essentially the your established um, uh, realm is basically. Well, actually, that that that's a pretty good place to put in the third slide. I think the emergence of revolutionary novelty in the course of goal directed behavior, and um, because it's no longer this kind of you know. Uh, mundane banal novelty that that doesn't threaten to upend your your life and your plans it's something he calls revolutionary novelty and um you know in his own life 
Peterson's experience of his, uh, of his wife's sickness in recent months was a revolutionary novelty. Uh, he, he had to, in the midst of, you know, book tours and, and television programs and signings, um, he had to stop everything and, and tend to the care of his wife. Um, and, and there was an element of, of chaos involved, uh, that, that was destabilizing to some extent. And, and who hasn't had some kind of upheaval? Uh, in their in their lives that they didn't anticipate that they couldn't um, think ahead for or prepare for uh, it it was revolutionary it was something that 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 had to that required some hard thinking as he would put it and also a kind of remapping of of all the values and all the uh, the the goal oriented behavior that up until then uh, ruled the show. Um, so it is out of that uh, out of that chaos, out of that revolutionary novelty, that um, we have an opportunity. Um, and I hope to I hope we'll be getting into this in a future show with uh, Nassim Taleb's anti fragile book, which gets into that quite a bit. Um, but for now, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because I'm, I'm reading about this, this section of, of, you know, this area of, of development, of life, of experience and thinking quite a lot of, uh, positive disintegration and, and Dabrowski and, and how, you know, going, having this, this bankruptcy of, of sorts, this, uh, being laid low, this experience of, of, of being knocked down, um, can cause you to f- further disintegrate, in which case it would be a, a negative disintegration, uh, or it can be the basis from which to build oneself uh, back up again. Yeah, and to reintegrate. Yes. Yeah, well, um, on the subject of the kind of mundane, ordinary bits of chaos that come into your life and the revolutionary ones um, in his kind of summary section at the beginning of the chapter. I just want to read a couple things that uh, get into that. So he says, we tell our, we tell ourselves stories about who we are, where we would like to be and how we are going to get there. These stories regulate our emotions by determining the significance of all the things we encounter and all the events we experience. We regard things that get us on our way as positive, things that impede our progress as negative, and things that do neither as irrelevant. Most things are irrelevant, and that is a good thing, as we have limited attentional resources. So that's what, th- that really struck me when he says these stories regulate our emotions. It's, it, it is stories that actually regulate our emotions, because by placing ourselves in that story, that's where we have, that's where things make sense. That's where there's meaning. If we didn't have stories, if we didn't have that um, that dynamic kind, that that narrative storyline that we can place ourselves in, and we did, if we didn't have the the realm of the known out of which we're operating in the present, then we would be encountering novelty at everything that we looked at, and that would be very stressful. It's just like if you imagine if uh, if your consciousness, if your awareness wasn't just limited to yourself, but you had the awareness, kind of like in X-Men of like uh, uh, Professor X, of all the humans on the planet at this present moment, 
it would be so completely overwhelming that you'd probably your your mind would explode mm -hmm. because there would be so much um, just think about that what that would entail seven billion people think about all the all the suffering that's going on at this moment all of the all the little and and huge suffering that is going on and all the all the joys and all the the, the positive things and all of the all of the just regular mundane things it would be information overload but not just information overload but emotion overload that is a lot to to take in that would that's what it would be that's something what it would be like to not have that uh, known territory from which to operate and to not place yourself in a, into a story. It would just be to be bombarded by all the chaos of everyone's life at one moment because everything in your life would be chaos. It would, be, it would just disintegrate you completely. At least that's the, that's the way I imagine it. So it's actually the stories that we place ourselves in that regulate those emotions, that bring them to manageable levels so that everything isn't chaotic, everything isn't novel, we're not constantly caught off guard by every mm -hmm. new thing. We have familiarity, we have things that can just let us get by in order to do the, the few goals that we have relative to the infinite um, just ebb and sway of the, the ocean of chaos in which we're surrounded. It's not all chaos because we can form some bit of order out of it in which to operate. And we need that little bit of stability in which to operate. Now, the problem, of course, comes when, because we don't have all information, we don't know everything, we, we don't have complete knowledge about everything that's going on and everything that will happen, so we can't predict accurately. We can't tailor our goals so that they'll work flawlessly every time. Right. We have to... We have to navigate this world that is a combination and an interplay of the known and the unknown. So that gets to the second quote here. Um, inconvenience, inconveniences interfere with our plans. We do not like inconveniences and will avoid dealing with them. Nonetheless, they occur commonly, so commonly, in fact, that they might be regarded as an integral, predictable, and constant feature of the human environment. We have adapted to this feature have the intrinsic resources to cope with inconveniences. We benefit, become stronger in doing so. So there's that bit of anti-fragility in there. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on, ignored inconveniences accumulate rather than disappear. When they accumulate in sufficient numbers, they produce a catastrophe, a self-induced catastrophe to be sure, but one that may be indistinguishable from an act of God. So this seems to be something, again, it's like the it's like the 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 structure and the fabric of the universe is composed in this way that we have goals and we're doing certain things but the the forum for action is set up in such a way that certain means certain things we do won't get us to our goals that we can make mistakes and so these are the minor inconveniences that come about that, that tell us that there's something wrong with our map. There's something wrong with our plan, something we haven't considered yet. Mm -hmm. And so, like he says, those inconveniences, if we don't attend to them and deal with them and revise our maps, right. then they accumulate to the point where they will hit us with a disaster. So as opposed to just, you know, maybe getting a few, uh, a few pebbles thrown our way, uh, on our walk, we're, we get a boulder that f that falls on us and crushes us completely, because they've accumulated so much mass that they will destroy us. So that the 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 method of life is to navigate this situation where we have to kind of constantly adapt 
our goals, refine our goals and, re and refine our plans in order to, in order to be able to, to make them work because we will run up against obstacles because we don't know the best way. No one does like no one, no one can, can have a goal in mind and then just effortless, effortlessly, effortlessly and expertly navigate the path to get there with no hiccups whatsoever. It's just not the way reality works mm -hmm. with, there is a, a huge amount of uncertainty in the world, things that we can't control, things that we don't know, probably the things that we can't know given our current condition and our current situation. So that is the situation we find ourselves. Now, the, coming back to the, the difference between normal and revolutionary life, in normal life, we have a plan, we have a goal, and minor inconveniences get in our way. But once we deal with those minor inconveniences, we can resume our plan and get to our goal, our original goal. It's like, um, it's like walking from A to B and there's a boulder in the middle. Well, that, that causes us to just slightly divert our path Technically, it's a new map, but it's pretty much the same. We're still going in the same direction. We're still getting to the same goal. We've gone from A to B, but just with a minor revision of our plan. But sometimes our goals are such that they are unreachable, that the, the, obstacle, we, the obstacle we encounter causes us to totally reshape our map. Mm -hmm. And so this would be the case of we're not going to be anymore. We're going to C. And this could be like a career, uh, like a total career change, um, some fundamental, like big change in your life. And this is where, um, where we can bring in, um, like, uh, positive disintegration and also some kind of like esoteric kind of self-development stuff like Gurdjieff, where there's like a, a radical reappraisal of one's life. Um, and it, it, it could be as simple as a career change, like changing the direction of your life, but on a on a more fundamental on a more fundamental level, it could be the um, like the total reorientation of your entire value structure, mm -hmm. the entire way you're thinking about your life and going about your life, to the point where, from that perspective, your career might be irrelevant. That it is it's something on such a uh, such a deeper level. So in positive disintegration this would this would be like you're living your life with certain goals in mind and then you realize that all of the all of the actions in your life that that none of them are and some well none of them are leading you towards the like the the ideal for yourself that you actually have in mind to some vague degree and some of them are probably going against that goal and and hindering your progress towards it and that that can inspire and provoke a a disintegration of the 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 kind of internal mental structure that you have currently to the point where you now devalue the things you used to value value something completely different that's on a on a different kind of moral level than your previous structure was so the things that were important to you beforehand become relatively unimportant in relation to this new thing, which is of supreme importance. And you can see this in examples of kind of maybe like, you know, religious transformation and, and um, um, conversion experiences, that type of thing. That's one example of, of something of this sort going on where you just completely, completely change your life. And, um, and this would be, this would be something like noticeable to, to other people where it's like, wow, you're a completely different person now. It's, I don't even recognize you because you're, you're, you're different on such a fundamental level. So this, 
this model applies applies on so many different levels and to yes. be, because it's so universal, it applies from the most mundane thing from getting up in the morning and walking to the bathroom to take a shower to the most fundamental things about life and the, the meaning of life uh, possible. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like the, they are all almost like, uh, it's like a giant fractal where you can zoom in and zoom out and the, the, the pattern is the same no matter what level of analysis you're on. That's why I think that, um, like I said, it's almost, there's this anti-materialism um, kind of philosophy embedded in these ideas to the point where I'd, I'd suspect you could apply this to, he even hints at it at certain points but never actually goes that far. He says, well, I'm not, I'm not going that far, but you could probably zoom this into like the quantum level and then zoom out to the, the level of the t- totality of the universe of this. That seems to be, it seems that there is something absolutely fundamental about this basic process of the, the known, you know, a transforming through, through, uh, through meaning and value into the ideal and, uh, and possible potential B. And that that is the that is just the way the universe works from from the most basic material bits that we can conceive of to whatever is greater than ourselves that uh, that we also can't conceive of. Well, you know, when you were saying all that, I was uh, specifically thinking of reading sot and and reading news about our world. Uh, about the the various things that are uh, profoundly shaping the landscape of the way that people are thinking and responding to um, to social movements to uh, environmental changes uh, all sorts of things and um, I was thinking of uh, I mean there, there there are any number of uh, environmental changes in particular uh, things coming into our atmosphere that is um, that the, the science has presented that has affected my way of thinking about how I eat. Uh, there, there are uh, signs that the economy is going in a certain direction and that um, one would do well to, uh, to, to think forward about the economy. Um, all of these things have um, been assimilated to some degree uh, let's say, uh, like you said, I mean, th- th- there are so many unknowns and unknown unknowns and, uh, unpredictable, uh, anomalies. You, you can't, uh, account for everything, but, um, you know, taking this at the, at the, as far in, on the macroscopic level as you can, um, and, and trying to anticipate at least what you can anticipate, <laughs> Uh, in terms of those chaotic uh, elements that might be introduced in, into your life and into the lives of many other people, uh, would just seem to be a, a very wise thing to do. Because then, it, then what happens is you get to, you have the opportunity to, to mitigate all of those um, potentially negative uh, developments uh, on your life, uh, on those goals that you may have. Um, you know, you can, you can plan ahead to the extent that it's possible. Um, so that to me is the, the value of, of keeping abreast of 
so many of the uh, the events that are unfolding that that make me make my head spin, uh, and that I you know that I would that are part of my um, you know going on in the background as I interact with the world as I as I uh, as I try to accomplish the goals that I have, um, and that's uh, and that's kind of an important thing because. The, the introduction of chaos into, uh, into reality on planet Earth at this time is, has so much uh, potential for destruction and, and for upending people's lives uh, simply because they, they're not taking certain things into account. Uh, and, and that would apply to me uh, you know, on those matters that I'm unaware of as well. So... Um, you know that that seems to be a, a big part of uh, why this perspective, I think, is so useful. Well, yeah, I, I just wanted to read a quote um, from that the second chapter. Uh, Peterson writes: "Creative exploration of the unknown and consequent generation of knowledge is construction or update of patterns of behavior and represent and representation, such that the unknown is transformed from something terrifying and compelling into something beneficial." or at least something irrelevant. The presence of capacity for such creative exploration and knowledge generation may be regarded as the third and final permanent constituent element of human experience, in addition to the domain of the known and unknown. Now, you can, I mean, you know, there's some question there about what it means to have, you know, creative exploration of the unknown. And I think that, you know, really that kind of comes down to anything that's constructive, anything that, that extends the organization, your own organization, into areas that previously you weren't, you just weren't aware of. You know, it's not, you know, just, just rushing headlong into, you know, into the chaos and whatever and then coming back, um, you know, bruised and battered, but it's really about bringing back something beneficial or at least turning, making some things irrelevant. And I think that's also a part of why order over time can become, you know, sort of tyrannical or banal is that, you know, there, you know, a lot of things just become irrelevant as, as order extends and, you know, you, you kind of imitate people's um, ideas or um, emotional states or attitudes towards different things. Uh, you end up with the, uh, you know, the, society can get to a point where it's like, well, we, now we know everything, um, you know, so, you know, who cares, you know, science, it's just a, a few days away and pretty soon we'll know everything there is to know in the universe, you know, and uh, you get that kind of egoism, I think that is, you know, part and parcel of being, you know, in a civilized or, you know, or, uh, you know, an Ivy League graduate or, you know, something along those lines where you have uh, benefited so much from the, the knowledge generated and the irrelevancy generated from past generations that, you know, you, you lose track of of how um, how that kind of chaos could turn you into a little worm, you know. He put in he devotes a section of the book to uh, to you know what it means to be civilized, and he discusses the fact that you know for a lot of civilized people, really what they do is they have the unknown and that chaos significantly at bay um, due to 
whatever technological, um, you know, sociological factors, servants, um, you know, help, economic help, financial help, all of these things can keep the chaos at bay that you lose track of how giant and how permanent a feature, the unknown, the chaotic, the, the irrational and terrifying um, really is in the daily lives of, you know, of everybody else. Hmm. Well, he also says, what is known and what unknown is always relative in a matter of speaking, because what is unexpected depends entirely upon what we expect, desire, on what we had previously planned and presumed. The unexpected constantly occurs because it is impossible in the absence of omniscience to formulate an entirely accurate model of what actually is happening or of what should happen. Because, because it is impossible to determine, to determine what results ongoing behavior will finally produce. Errors in representation of the unbearable present and the ideal desired future are inevitable in consequence, as are errors of implementation and representation of the means by which the former can be transformed into the latter. The infinite human capacity for error means that encounter with the unknown is inevitable. In the course of human experience, means that the likelihood of such encounter is as certain, regardless of place and time of individual existence, as death and taxation. The variable existence of the unknown, paradoxically enough, can therefore be regarded as an environmental constant. Adaptation to the existence of this domain must occur. Therefore, in every culture and in every historical period, regardless of the particulars of any given social or biological circumstance. So here he's saying that um, adaptation uh, to, to the unknown, having that capacity for um, adapting to the, the situation, to the chaos, to the, the novelty that, that's... Um, that is so um, unpredictable and, and unpreparable for uh, is uh, a kind of a crucial um, element to, to survival and hopefully something beyond survival. Hopefully, um, you know, reaching a place within one's own being that, uh, that affords the, uh, the capacity to to resume, you know, the, the goals that, that one has had, or to reevaluate them at least in such a way that would be constructive um, and, and, uh, and forwarding. Well, I want to get back to something I said at the top of the show about us being kind of constantly, constantly involved in this process of uh, comparing to the future and um, and encountering this novelty. So going off that quote that you just read, um, partway through the chapter, I want to read this paragraph. He writes, You also have a model of the present, constantly operative. You understand your somewhat subordinate position within a corporation, which is your importance relative to the others above and below you in the hierarchy. You understand the significance of those experiences that occur regularly while you are doing your job. You know who you can give orders to, who you have to listen to, who is doing a good job, who can be safely ignored, and so on. 
You are always comparing this present unsatisfactory condition to that of your ideal, which is you increasingly respected, powerful, rich, and happy, free of anxiety and suffering, climbing towards your ultimate success. You are unceasingly involved in attempts to transform the present as you currently understand it into the future as you hope it will be. Your actions are designed to produce your ideal, designed to transform the present into something ever more closely resembling what you want. You're, uh, you are confident in your model of reality in your story. When you put it into action, you get results. Now, I just want to get a bit deeper into this idea of being, <clears throat> of unceasingly comparing. Because like I, like I mentioned, I think, this is a process that goes on automatically. It doesn't have to be conscious. Um, you, you can be aware of your position in the hierarchy, but you, cannot, but you can also not be aware that you're aware of it. Like we have this, uh, we might have this awareness that, okay, well, that person's below me in the social hierarchy. I, I, can, I can push them around, but I have to be, I have to really um, brown nose or, you know, be teacher's pet towards whoever in the company or, you, or a teacher or a professor or whatever. You've got this, aware, this kind of automatic awareness of the social hierarchy. And uh, Peterson talks about this in uh, 12 Rules for Life 2 in the Lobster chapter, just that this is this process that, we, that goes on in all, you know, in, well, in the vast majority of life forms, potentially all of them, this awareness of, of social hierarchy. But you don't actually have to be consciously aware of it. You, you can have some people just kind of going through the motions that, without thinking about it, know these things. So they treat other people as dirt because they know they're below them, and they, um, they suck up to the boss because they, they know that'll get them good things. But they're not, they haven't actually identified consciously that these things are going on. If you were to ask them what, uh, about this, they wouldn't be able to necessarily um, like verbalize this awareness of it. So... And I, I think this applies to so many different levels and, and facets because we are such complex things. We're constantly engaged in so many goals that we're not aware of. And this could be, and it, you, can, you can start the picture at the lowest level of just your biology. Like there's so many things going on in your biology that you're not consciously aware of. So I, I think Peterson gets into this, how you like on the level of digestion or respiration or blood circulation. It's like these things are going on in your body without your awareness. And there are, go there are tons of goal-directed behaviors going on in your cells and all the systems of your body that you're not consciously aware of. You might get signals of them every once in a while in the form of hunger or the need to go to the bathroom or you know, feeling too hot or too cold. But, you're, you, but they haven't the processes themselves haven't raised themselves to the level of consciousness. And at the same time, that's happening probably for a lot of people in their daily lives, in their, in their jobs, in their relationships, that because, partially at least, because they haven't analyzed those things and really thought them and pondered on them, they are acting like effectively as automatons in their life without having examine these things. So you have this vague, this extremely vague goal of where you want to be in your relationship, for instance, or what your career goals are, or your goals in your job. So this would be just like the life of coasting through things, just expecting things to happen the way you want them to happen, even though you don't really have a great idea of what you want to happen in the first place. So this process of constantly comparing is still going on. Like you've got this, this vague idea of a better relationship, 
but because you're not even sure of what the goal is, you don't have a plan, you don't know what to change, what to do differently, what to keep doing, you just kind of keep going through the motions because in the in the vague hope that you might uh, that you might reach that goal but you're not going to get there or at the very least it's going to be very very slow like you might not get there before you die because you haven't identified you haven't elaborated and articulated what the actual goal is so this gets into why peterson is always recommending his um, future authoring program is to actually make the plan because when you actually make the plan verbal when you actually put it into a form then you can actually see it you can see something that beforehand was just this vague like miasmus is that a, is that a word just uh, diaphanous thing this foggy notion of what the the future might be but when you actually fill in the detail and kind of zoom in on that to get a, a high definition picture of what that is then you can get you can get into your plans um, you can you can start seeing what the actual things you could be doing differently are, what things that you're not doing that you that you have to be doing, or maybe that your goal you don't even actually want that goal. You had this vague goal, let's say, of this um, this future position in your job that you were striving towards in all these ways that you weren't even really consciously aware of. But now when you look at it, you realize you don't even like your job. You don't even want to be in this position. You don't want to be manager because you would rather be doing something else completely that your that, that vague goal that you had in mind wasn't even in that wasn't even applicable to the job that you are in right now. The vague feeling that you had was that you wanted uh, you wanted like some kind of uh, vocational fulfillment in a completely different area. He gives a couple examples of that too, of the the guy that um, goes into the meeting with these high expectations of how he's going to perform and what he's going to say and how everyone's going to love him, and then afterwards he he thinks he did a great job, and then he gets called into the the boss's office and she tells him, you know, you're not cut out for this. Everyone hates you. Essentially, you you act like a total jerk in meetings, and and the guy says, oh, what? what? You know, gets all angry. Oh, you know, that, that lady, that boss is a bitch. And then he gets home and after stewing for a month or two, realizes that he never liked the job in the first place and he always wanted to do something else. Just that there's that kind of example. So there is a, there is a definite, definite uh, positive, I guess, and effective, effective, what's the word? Um, there's something positive and effective about articulating for yourself what your goals actually are, mm-hmm. about determining what they are, and then being able to put a plan into action. And that, of course, gets into Stephen Covey's book that we talked about a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah, we, uh, we've discussed this in the past. I can't remember if it was Alfred North Whitehead or if it was Collingwood, but um, how they de- uh, defined what it meant to be a rational being. And in order to be a rational being, you had to have a reason for the things that you do. And that was part of the, you know, the meaning of the word rational. And, you know, when you, uh, when you're living your life based on these, you know, fuzzy, vague goals, you you know, it's fairly irrational. I mean, you could maybe have some kind of a reason like, oh, I want to be rich. But I mean, have you really, you know, did you, you know, dig deep down? Why did you want to be rich? Well, you know, to blah, 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 blah. (laughs) 
you know, what is the real core reason? What is the real mission in your life? And like you said, that does go back to, you know, like all the different exercises and work behind, you know, the seven habits of highly effective people, which is to develop someone who's rational and in a way that is oriented towards others, serving others and making their lives better and being an effective person in your own life as well. But, um, before, and Peterson, throughout this chapter, he really lays it out really in a stunning way so that by the time you're, you're done with this portion of the chapter that we're talking about, you come away with the sense that, you know, people are mostly like maybe 99%, all of us 99%, like artificially intelligent. And all these systems, all these drives that we have are programmed and they make decisions. They, they operate, they affect our consciousness so you know that we're hungry or we're thirsty or we're angry or afraid and all these different things but um you know until it's it just it seems to me until you are able to say that you do have a reason and you're testing the things that you're doing against a reason that is support that subordinates all these other drives then it's it's hard to say that you really do have yourself um you know like a an individual consciousness character or personality anything like that and as you were pointing out harrison you know you this requires in some way it seems like it requires kind of an uh, an acceptance of the unknown and of the chaos, because um, when you accept that the reasons that you're doing things are not well thought out or silly or stupid, now you are left with a great, this huge, vast array of potential of the unknown that is like it's it's both frightening. Frightening in one sense, and like you pointed out, Ilan, there is something hopeful about it too. But primarily, it's frightening. You know, it, you have to you start questioning everything that you, you know, everything that you thought, everything you were taught. Your mind is going back through your history, the decisions that you made that got you to where you were at. Were they good decisions? Can you even remember the reasons why you made the decisions? You know, the past is this vast sea of of just uh, of pure amorphous, you know, craziness, you know, for a, a lot of people, you know, we say you read an autobiography and it seems like, oh, and then I did this because of this. And then I did that and that, you know, and that and that, but you know, for, for just about everybody, the past is just like a, holy crap, was that a train wreck? I'm glad, I, you know, I'm glad I made it through that and um, I'm still able to, you know, tell the, tell the tale. But I think that's one of the benefits to, um, under or to reading maps of meaning is because it gives you a diagram, kind of a template for um, for knowing what it means to be human in that way. You know, you you get a sense. He he really paints the picture that of, of all the different systems that are involved in all of the things that we think that make us unique. Our our effective subjective experiences that we think make us unique. We see he go he. He goes all the way down to um, rats and rodents, and you you know you see like wow you know these rodents when they see a cat come around they just scream and scream and scream for you know for up to like seven or eight hours and then they go back to doing similar kinds of activities that that we do as human beings you know they have similar kinds of socializing and all that stuff and they've got their you know their little rat parties I'm sure and all the, and all that kind of stuff but you know the same effective art I don't know if you want to say it's art artificially intelligent, but that's just what I'm going to 
rest with for right now is that you know the same artificially intelligent kind of um, foundation for behavior and experience uh, that we have, but we also have the potential um, through you know manipulating. Uh, objects, you know, with our, you know, with our speech, with our hands, with our minds, intellectually, we can, we can probe, you know, the intentions that we have, the intentions that others have, and we can seek to find goals that are better and diff completely different maps than the ones that we had previously. And it's when you, when you start doing that, then you're, you're venturing into a territory that is completely completely bizarre because you don't have a map for it whatsoever. And maybe you get to a point where nobody has a map for it, you know? And that's where I think you're talking about individuals who are truly pioneers, that they get, they go into a territory where nobody has ever, ever been before. And it could be psychologically like Peterson or, you know, other authors that we sp uh, spoke about, like Andrew Lobachevsky and his writings on the um, activities of psychopaths and positions of power and how, you know, his, his take on how these um, major reg evil regimes um, take form. But, you know, individuals who are thrust into the unknown, into the chaos, but they still retain that creative, hopeful uh, ability to, to bring back something, uh, you know, that of value, of, of supreme value in, in many cases uh, for other people. And they do it with, a, they have, they have a, a, some spe spectacularly different map than, you know, just us average slubs. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, you know, what you said reminded me of a few things. Uh, one was uh, the book that we did a show on some time ago called The Strange Order of Things, which um, lays out the groundwork for how we have these, uh, these systems that we're built upon um, that, that are designed, it would seem, to uh, establish homeostasis, this homeostatic imperative, uh, this balance within ourselves that would be the kind of AI you're talking about. They're so automatic. They're so uh, designed, um, uh, you know, that, that uh, we're largely unconscious of them. Um, but what differs from ourselves and, say, rats is our, at least biologically, is our prefrontal cortex that he, he discusses a little bit in this chapter, and at least our capacity and potential to um, conceptualize time and future goals and to think in the abstract in such a way that we are capable of assessing our values, uh, reassessing them, looking at them from different perspectives. And, and that's one of our gifts, again, at least in potential, um, where, uh, where the more we become conscious of them, the, the more there is an active thinking uh, that may not always be easy, um, but, but that we choose to engage in, the more we do this, the, the more kind of um, uh, control um, or at least ability to respond to the chaos we, we can give ourselves. Um, and, and another thing, I'm glad you brought up Lovachesky, Corey, because again, I, you know, and I think I've said this on a previous show, um, Jordan Peterson is a ponderologist. He is, he is looking at the pathology of, of society and offering them a, an alternative, a way out, another, another way to respond to the pathological influences of, of a 
you know, of movements that would um, instill in a person the, the, the motivation or the impetus to react instead of to assess and to respond. Uh, you know, and that, that's really one of his great values. And the irony, of course, and we've said this before too, is that he's vilified, vilified and demonized and accused of being exactly the thing that he's trying to point out to people. Um, and it's incredible to read critiques of this guy. The, the, you know, people just don't, they don't want to get it. They don't want to take responsibility for their own choices and, and for the things that they are uh, assuming uh, to be true. Um, they're making presumptions about how things work and who they are left, right, and center. And, um, and you know, his life's work is no, you know, the, you want to, you want to consider these issues. You want to be thinking about your own, uh, your own story, your own, uh, map of values that that's going to, uh, you know, bring you forward in life with as few uh, chaotic elements as possible, uh, or at least uh, the, the, the mechanisms, the, the strength and the, the, um, uh, the resources to respond to uh, the chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, which, re- which reminds me of another thing that he had written in, in uh, this chapter. He says that, Deviations from desired outcome constitute relatively novel events, indicative of errors in presumption, either at the level of analysis of current state, process, or ideal future, or ideal future. Such mismatches, unpredictable, non-redundant, or novel occurrences, constantly comprise the most intrinsically meaningful, interesting elements of the human experiential field. This interest and meaning signifies the presence of new information and constitutes a prepotent stimulus for human and animal action. It is where the unpredictable emerges that the possibility for all new and useful information exists. It is during the process of exploration of the unpredictable or unexpected that all knowledge and wisdom is generated all boundaries of adapted competence extended, all foreign territory explored, mapped, and mastered. The eternally extant domain of the unknown therefore constitutes the matrix from which all conditional knowledge emerges. Everything presently known to each, everything rendered predictable, was at one time unknown to all and had to be rendered predictable, beneficial at best, irrelevant at worst as a consequence of active exploration-driven adaptation. The matrix is of indeterminable breadth. Despite our great storehouse of culture, despite the wisdom bequeathed to us by our ancestors, we are still fundamentally ignorant and will remain so, no matter how much we learn. The domain of the unknown surrounds us like an ocean surrounds an island. We can increase the area of the island but we never take away much from the sea. So when you mentioned the sea before and how we, you know, how much, how much there is to know, um, it reminded me of that quote, which is uh, pretty wonderful, I think. Mm-hmm. But he seems to be saying two things at the same time. 
Um, one is we're never going to, you know, knowledge is infinite. Mm -hmm. There's a, a sea of information. Uh, by, the, by the same token, it's out of this kind of pioneering spirit, as you said, that, that we're going to grow, that we're going to uh, find uses for knowledge and information in ways that, uh, that can be of service to others and to ourselves. Right, and that it's not like you know everybody's got to be a pioneer, but rather that um, this you know this special class of people or whatever is um, is a, a distinct is a distinct class, and there's definitely a distinct attitude taken towards the unknown that um, that Peterson's work kind of serves as as a blueprint almost, you know, for a map of, uh, no, of meaning. <laughs> Absolutely not. None of those things. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, as, like a map Corey's for being disagreeable. <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, okay. Anyway, so this is, I wanted to read this quote because I thought it was really interesting. It's, um, it's a little bit off of what we've been discussing, but I, I was thinking about, you know, people and their, their self-knowledge. And it's easy, I think, you know, for people to get caught up in the past. But I think a certain objective understanding of your past, your upbringing, is, is good. And I thought that this, this quote from uh, Peterson really uh, hit the nail on the head. He wrote, Past experience, learning, does not merely condition. Rather, such experience determines the precise nature of the framework of reference or context that will be brought to bear on the analysis of any given situation. This cognitive frame of reference acts as the intermediary between past learning, present experience, and future desire. This intermediary is a valid object of scientific exploration, a phenomenon as real as anything abstracted is real, and far more parsimonious and accessible as such a phenomenon than the simple non-interpreted and non-measurable, in any case, sum total of reinforcement history. You know, all the things that have happened to you, whatever, all the times that you, you know, stubbed your toe. Frameworks of reference influenced in their structure by learning specify the valence of ongoing experience, determine what might be regarded in a given time and place as good, bad, or indifferent. Furthermore, inferences about the nature of the framework of reference governing the behavior of others, that is, looking at the world through the eyes of another, may produce results that are more useful, more broadly general, general, generalizable, generalizable as insights into the personality of another, and less demanding of cognitive resources than attempts to understand the details of a given person's reinforcement history." And so I was thinking that it's, um, and that, what he's saying there, it, it seems like it's good to have a, basically a profile of, of, who, if, of who you would be if you weren't you. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you know this person, you know yourself, you know the experiences that you've had, and now you kind of just extrapolate that out now. Okay, so if, this, if I knew somebody else who had these same experiences, what kind of a person would I think they would be? How would, do I think they would react towards these other things? You know, and then also, same when you're, if you develop profiles of other people around you, is you get to know them, and you understand, you know, by profile, I'm talking about that, that framework of reference, of valences, um, you know, about what this person considers good, what that person considers bad, and it goes hand in hand with what we were talking about on Stephen Covey's show in terms of 
um, being proactive and knowing what, you know, adds to an emotional, the emotional bank account that you and another person share and the trust bank account versus what actually detracts from it. Because I know, you know, one person, um, you know, making fun of them adds to the emotional bank account because I know that their their reinforcement history. Another person, you make fun of them, and it's like, oh my god, you know, this now we're going to have a fight, now it's a war. You know, it's you know something like that. I just thought it was it was an interesting quote from that um, from this chapter of the book. Mm-hmm. Well, um, since we're getting close to the end of the show, just wanted to show the last slide here that we have. It's called the regeneration of stability from the domain of chaos. And uh, basically it, it kind of um, visualizes the, uh, you know, the, the kind of um, existence that you, the normal everyday existence um, where the possibility for uh, novelty exists. Um, and then you have the introduction of, of chaos, which, um, which, thank you, Harrison, which, um, which is a disintegration or a descent. Um, but then it offers a, a kind of a, another way, which is the, as we were saying earlier, the reintegration or the ascent, um, where you, you can get back on, the, back on track, potentially. So, you know, with, with every uh, fall, Hopefully, there's a, a possibility and a, a motivation to um, to come out better and to uh, continue the story that you're writing for yourself uh, in such a way that uh, a new perspective is found, a new piece of information is learned, a new value is added, and um, that's uh, that's you know when you're in the midst of chaos, it, it certainly doesn't feel that way. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you want to work through it and, um, and get back on track. And so, uh, like we were saying, you know, this is a, uh, this is a kind of a, uh, a look at all the, all of the dynamics involved in mapping your life out, uh, mapping the, the values of your story to yourself, if no one else and to, um, to finding the best ways forward in the midst of anom- anomalies of all kinds. And on that note, folks, thanks very much for listening. Uh, we appreciate your, your, um, your listening, and uh, we hope that you hit subscribe and smash like, and uh, we look forward to next week when we have another opportunity to, uh, to share with you stuff that we're we're learning and thinking about. All right. See you, everyone. Thanks. Bye, everybody.